Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.scbts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, good evening. If you would, take your Bible and join me in the Gospel of Mark, the third chapter. Mark chapter 3. This brings us to the end of the five controversies that Jesus has had with the Pharisees as recorded in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, going through chapter 3, verse 6. And in a real sense, Mark has placed this fifth one here because things reach a climax because, as we see in verse 6, after this, uh, the Pharisees will join ranks with, of all people, the Herodians, and they will begin to plot how they will destroy Jesus. And if you're trying to keep up with Jesus' public ministry chronologically, uh, we're in about the end of the first year. So he's been ministering maybe a year, a little more than that, maybe a year and a half. And uh, great popularity is building around him, but also great opposition to the extent, as I said, the uh, Pharisees will go out with their arch enemies, the Herodians, and they will begin to think, all right, how can we destroy this man? How can we stop uh, what he is doing? And so this fifth and final controversy in the uh, series that Mark brings together deals with a man with a withered hand, and I've given the text the title, It is Always Right to Do Good. You'll see that that comes right out of the verses that we are about to read. So chapter 3, verse 1, Mark writes, Again, he, that is Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Sometimes fatal or at least traumatic collisions are inevitable in life. I, along with millions of others, witnessed such a collision this month on Thursday evening, December the 3rd, when an NBA superstar by the name of LeBron James, who now plays for the Miami Heat, returned to his former city and his former team, the Cleveland Cavaliers, for the first game against his former teammates. Uh, the city was in a frenzy. Uh, and the tension in the Colosseum could have easily been cut with a knife as people showed up with, with banners and with uh, letters and words inscribed on their T-shirts. Some were even banned from being allowed into the Colosseum because of the profane nature of what they had to say. ESPN, in writing a follow-up story, noted, and I quote, uh, before the game, fans peppered him with obscene chants and booed every time he appeared on the giant TV screens beneath the scoreboard. They held up signs like, Quitness, 
there were guys wearing a single letter each on their white T-shirts that spelled out Labum. For his part, James said it was nothing personal, quote, I have the utmost respect for this franchise, the utmost respect for their fans. Still, if you watched the game, you watched him in the second half taunt uh, repeatedly the Cleveland Cavalier bench. Uh, furthermore, he went on to uh, later refuse when given the opportunity to apologize uh, to the Cleveland fans. If you know what happened earlier uh, this summer on national television, LeBron James informed the nation at that moment that he would not be returning to Cleveland, but rather he would be moving to play with uh, Dwayne uh, Wade down in Miami. Uh, the fans believing he was going to stay with them, be believing he was going to remain loyal uh, to a city that he he had basically grown up nearby from and had taken him under their wings and really had elevated him almost to something of a demagogue. And yet, when given the chance to say, you know, if I had to do it over again, I would have left in a different kind of a way, he said, no, I, I won't apologize to the Cleveland uh, Cavaliers, nor will I apologize to their fans. Uh, just for the record, Miami destroyed Cleveland uh, 118 to 90. And LeBron James scored a high uh, for this season, 38 points. He scored 24 points uh, in the third quarter alone. Uh, it was an inevitable conflict. Uh, praise God, it wasn't fatal, but it was rather traumatic for him as well as for the city. Well, in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, we see the climax also of an inevitable collision that eventually will lead uh, to something of a, of a fatality because Jesus himself will eventually suffer death on a cross as a result of his conflict with the religious leaders. We've been watching it build. We've been watching it escalate, beginning back in chapter 1, moving to where we are now. And interestingly, as we see the uh, conflict building, we also see hostility. And I choose my word carefully, but I think correctly here, even anger building on both sides. Jesus, for his part, is very angry because the Pharisees want to place limits on when it's right to do good and save life. On the other hand, the Pharisees and now the Herodians enter into uh, the scene because they are ticked off and fed up with the young rabbi's continuous actions to, on the one hand, swap their traditions, uh, to refuse to walk according to their religious rules, and of course for the Herodians, uh, who were giving their allegiance to Herod and to the status quo, he was also a major threat to them as well. And as I read at the end of chapter 3, there in verse 6, so great now is their hatred and hostility, they are plotting how they might destroy him. I think it's very clear that Jesus knew this. And so the question is, will Jesus back up? Will Jesus back down? Uh, will Jesus uh, in any way compromise in light of the opposition that he is facing? And the answer is very clearly revealed, no. Uh, he will not back up. He will not back down. He will not compromise. Uh, he is so consumed, as should we be, with fulfilling the will of his Father. He moves forward with an, uh, a, an uncompromising commitment to be obedient all the way to the cross. 
Indeed, Jesus teaches us, and a lesson we should have known anyway, but maybe one we need to be reminded of, it is always right to do good, even if it costs you your life. And so what is it that we see in terms of fleshing out this thesis, it's always right to do good? What do we see in this text uh, this evening? Three major ideas. Number one, doing good for the glory of God will invite critical scrutiny. Verse 1, again, he entered the synagogue, so this is another time where he shows up in the house of Jewish worship. A man was there with a withered hand, and they, that is the the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, they watched Jesus. Uh, They watched him carefully to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. For Jesus, it's very clear that doing good is not to be restricted Uh, either by a particular date or by a particular location. And so once more, as Mark says, he enters into the synagogue, the local uh, meeting house for Jewish worship. Further, it is noted in verse 2, he's in the synagogue, this particular place. And also there's a particular date. Once more, it was the Sabbath. And, of course, Jesus has just uh, violated their religious sensibilities by allowing his disciples to pluck some grain on the Sabbath so that they would have something to eat. You see that back in chapter 2 and verse 23. And then you see the reaction of the Pharisees who were saying, this is a no-no. You you do not uh, uh, reap. You don't work on the Sabbath, even if you're hungry. Uh, better to go hungry than to violate their traditions. And so they were already on edge. And so now, as he comes back into the synagogue, there, it's almost like Jesus is inviting the showdown. Uh, it's almost as if he is asking for the controversy to escalate to an even higher level. He, he knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, he is not caught unawares of the context uh, of, of what he is about to do. In fact, one cannot help but believe that Jesus is deliberately provoking them when you see these series of controversies that have begun in chapter 2, verse 1, and now climax in chapter 3, verse 6. Just very quickly, he has been told back in chapter 2, verse 5, don't you claim to forgive sins. He's been told in chapter 2 and verse 16, you ought not to be consorting with sinners. Uh, he's been told back in chapter 2 and verse 18, don't you work in order, uh, uh, don't you neglect fasting as we dictate it. And then in verse uh, 24 of chapter 2, don't you work in order to eat on the Sabbath. And so again and again and again and again, Jesus is told by the Pharisees what he is not to do. And I think he's just reached a point where I, that's it. Uh, I am fed up to hear with your hypocrisy, with your legalism, with your traditions that force upon the people things that the Bible has nothing to say about at all. And so you want to show down? Boom. I'll give you one right now. Now, in the midst of doing this. Jesus also shows us something that ought to be true in terms of our disposition in light of the criticism we we may receive from people for doing the right thing and and doing good things. So the first thing we see is this. We should be sensitive. Regardless of the date, regardless of the context, regardless of what is going on, we should be sensitive to those who need compassion. Verse 1 tells us again, Jesus enters the synagogue again, and he sees a man with a withered, or some translations may have, a shriveled hand. Luke chapter 6, verse 6, by the way, informs us that it was his 
right hand. Now, we don't know uh, if the hand was deformed, uh, paralyzed, or both. The, the text uh, does not say. We're not informed if his withered, uh, shriveled hand is the result of an accident. Uh, is it the result of a disease? <clears throat> was it perhaps some type of congenital defect? We don't know. All we know is he's disabled and he is in need of both love and compassion. He's needed it for a long time. Uh, he certainly needs it today. Uh, this man, I suspect, would have been pretty well known. Uh, some may have even drawn the erroneous, a uh, faulty theological conclusion that he was deformed in his hand and that it was the result of a curse from God. You may remember the story back in John chapter 2 verses uh, 1 through 41 where uh, Jesus heals the man uh, who was born blind and, and his disciples ask him in John chapter 2 verse 3, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And so even the disciples were uh, uh, guilty of a faulty theology, thinking that this man had been born blind because either he sinned in his mother's womb or his parents had sinned, and this was therefore the judgment of God. And so maybe some were saying of this man, you know, he has that hand from birth, and it is certainly an evidence of God's curse upon him and certainly an evidence that he or his parents have, have done something wrong. And yet Jesus, I think, would say now, as he said in John chapter 2 and verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And yet there's also a very interesting verse that I found in my study. Uh, in Psalm 137, verse 5, which simply says this, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. I'm not saying this man had forgotten Jerusalem. I'm simply saying that they had within their world uh, the ability to say that he had this deformed, this shriveled, this paralyzed hand, and that it was the result of something either he or his parents had done wrong. Now, again, try to put yourself in this man's uh, position for a moment. Uh, evidently, he was faithful to come to worship regularly. And can you imagine week after week after week he shows up? And can you imagine that in their context, in particular, those occasions when in their worship they would lift up their hands unto the Lord, which is certainly a, a biblical and legitimate thing to do as long as it's not done to, to show off or to draw attention. And so here he is putting up his hand, and of course that hand would have stood out, wouldn't it? And it would have had to have been a source of some embarrassment for him, And so Jesus takes notice of this man. And Jesus, ta Jesus takes notice of him with compassion. He sees his condition. And he has determined that he is going to do something about it. And he's going to do something about it right now. We should be sensitive to those in need of compassion. But secondly, be ready for those who always criticize. You see, one of the uh, drawbacks, one of the unfortunate consequences of having a legalistic spirit is that you become critical. You always look for fault. Uh, you always look for the negative, for the bad. You always have that partly cloudy disposition. That glass is always half full. And so you're always on the lookout. You're in the, the kickative mood from the get-go. And you're looking for things to criticize rather than things to praise and to affirm and say, this is right. In fact, what I've come to understand in life is you develop this critical, judgmental spirit. It colors everything you see. 
you almost become incapable of seeing good. And even when you see it, you want to tear it down, you want to pull it down, you want to find something wrong with it, and so you criticize, and you don't see things as they really are. You don't see things clearly. In fact, for some people, they almost become blind to the good things that are going on among the people of God. And so the Pharisees, it says there in verse 2, they watched him. Uh, in my paraphrase, I've written the word, they were eyeballing. I mean, they were looking at him with scrutiny. They were looking at him carefully. They were eyeballing him. In fact, the tense of the verb is imperfect, which means they were continually. I mean, they, they were watching him like an eagle. They were not looking at anyone else. They were watching him. When I was at Southern Seminary, uh, I was the uh, vice president for academic administration and the dean of the School of Theology. And uh, me and my colleagues and even my fellow students always used to take great delight in watching Dr. Al Mohler when the guy was preaching. Because if the guy preaching said something that uh, he didn't like, or said something that he did not agree with, or said something that really bothered him, Dr. Mohler would drop his head, and all you could see is a red glow from up here. And he had this terrible nervous habit that if something bothered him, if, if, his, if he's sitting down, his hand would do this. And so, and if he really got upset, he'd, he'd break dance for us. Both, both hands would be going. And so we would watch him more than we would look, uh, listen to the preacher because we wanted to watch and see what, you know. So actually we kind of enjoyed a little bad preaching every now and then just to watch Dr. Muller up there doing his break dance. It was a, it was a really hilarious thing to do. So just like we would eyeball Al, they were eyeballing Jesus, looking for any possible reason to do what? Verse 2, to accuse him. To accuse him. Now, in English, we can't capture really the, the import of that phrase because it is a legal charge. Uh, it's a, a legal phrase. In other words, the, the Pharisees were looking carefully at him so that they might be able to bring an accusation against him of violating the Sabbath, which, by the way, according to the Old Testament, was punishable by death. So how do you know that? Well, you've got the reference. I'll read it for you. Don't turn there. Exodus chapter 31, verse 14 through 17. Listen to what Moses wrote. You shall keep the Sabbath. Because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Everyone, whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day, it is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore... The people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a, first of all, covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And so they are there eyeballing Jesus. And they are looking at him with the hope that they can actually bring a legal charge against him that will stick, that will discredit him among the people, and even open him up to the possibility of a death sentence. 
so that you might know just how much they revered the Sabbath. Again, in my study, I found out that the famous rabbi Shammai was so strict in this area of honoring the Sabbath that he actually opposed praying for the sick or visiting the sick on the Sabbath because it was to be a day marked by joy. And if you visited the sick or you prayed for the sick, it would in some way limit or steal your joy. And so that's how rigorous they were in building this, what I called last week, a, a fence around the Sabbath with their traditions that wound up strangling the people and putting on them a burden that no one could bear. So in this particular context, the bottom line is heal another day, not today. Do good on another day, but you don't do good on the Sabbath. Do you hear how moronic that is? Do good on any day but the Lord's day. On the Lord's day, don't do good. I mean, folks, this is just spiritual madness. And yet sometimes we're just as guilty of making those same type of rigorous, uh, legalistic rules and regulations binding on others as well. And so what you have here is nothing less than a life of criticism, a life of fault-finding. It enslaves them to man-made rules and regulations. And then, not content with imposing those uh, rules and regulations on themselves like a spiritual uh, Gestapo, they begin to track down others and try to put the same enslavement upon them. By the way, Jesus addressed this very directly in Matthew chapter 23, verses 2 through 4. Again, let me just read the text for you. Jesus says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. Here's the key line. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear. And lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And then later in that same chapter, Matthew chapter 23 and verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves doing good for the glory of God will invite critical scrutiny. Number two, doing good for the glory of God will require personal conviction. By now, you can cut the tension with a knife. Uh, the showdown at the OK Corral has nothing on this particular showdown in the synagogue with Jesus and the Pharisees. They are eyeballing Jesus, verse two. But hey, by the way, Jesus is eyeballing them, verse 5. And so will he flinch? Will he blink? Will he back down? Will he give in just this once? Will he compromise to keep peace in the family? And again, the answer is a resounding no. In fact, what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34? I came not to bring peace. I came to bring a sword and even goes on to say to set family members against one another. And so Jesus is basically throwing down the gauntlet saying no compromise here, no compromise on my message, no compromise on my actions. And with the courage of his convictions, he presses forward knowing that his obedience is ultimately going to result in his death 
on the cross. Now, he provides three great guidelines for you and for me as to how we ought to do good for the glory of God, maintaining our personal convictions. Number one, he says, be right in what you do. Verse three, Jesus said to him, that is the man with the withered hand, come here. Some translations have uh, stand up, uh, and the I've even says stand up in front of everyone. By the way, that phrase stand up is an imperative. So Jesus gives the man a word of command. Come here, stand up, and do so in front of everyone. He's going to make the man a, a public spectacle. Uh, he is intending to make a public scene of all this. He's very deliberate in his provocation. So he commands the man to stand up. Then look down at verse 5. He commands the man, again an imperative, stretch out your hand. And verse 5, the result, his hand was restored. And so Jesus commands the man, stand up in front of everyone. Jesus commands the man, put forth your right hand. And Jesus, in grace and mercy and goodness, restores his hand. He makes it whole. In other words, you have right here just a little picture of the complete and full restoration that Jesus will bring at the end of the age when we have established what Revelation 21 and 22 calls the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. In other words, this is a foretaste of the reversal of the curse that will be summarized so beautifully in Revelation 21 verse 4. Listen, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There would have been no withered hands apart from the fall. And when Jesus makes all things new, there'll be no withered hands, no blind eyes, no lame legs in that new heaven, that new earth, and that new Jerusalem. Now, let me make one observation before I go on. Jesus is actually fulfilling the intent and the heart of the law. Sometimes people say, well, Jesus came, came to set aside the law. Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus, as Matthew says, came to fulfill the law. And here Jesus very much fulfills the intent and the heart of the Mosaic law by what he does. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, later in Mark chapter 12 and verse 28, one of the scribes will come up to him and they are arguing with one another. And so they ask him, which commandment is the most important of all? And what does Jesus say in Mark chapter 12, verse 29 and following? Listen, Jesus answered and he said to him, the most important commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And, listen, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. And so the fact of the matter is, it is the Pharisees who are violating the law, not Jesus. And Jesus, by restoring this man's hand, fulfills beautifully and perfectly the intent of the Mosaic law, basically summarized by my proposition taken from Jesus. It's always right to do good. And so sometimes in life and ministry, brothers and sisters, we just have to recognize we have to confront. 
We even have to provoke others. It's not easy. It's not fun. Anybody that likes to fuss and fight with their brothers and sisters in Christ has some problems. He needs drugs and therapy. He's got issues. The fact of the matter is, sometimes you do have to confront. And sometimes you do have to provoke. Sometimes it's absolutely necessary, especially when the right thing is not being done. So Jesus says, first of all, be right in what you do. Secondly, be right in what you say. Verse 4, Jesus raises a good question. And it is the right question given the situation of the man and the foolish regulations of the Pharisees. He says there in verse 4, and he said to them, that is to everyone, but in particular the Pharisees, and it's a twofold kind of question. Number one, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Second part of the question, to, to save life or to kill? So... Sabbath day, but by extension, any day, is it right to do the following? Good, save a life. Or is it better to harm or to kill? You say, well, Jesus is what? He's framing the question in extremes uh, as he, as clear as he can. We're going to save life or kill? We're going to harm or do good? Now, this is a no-brainer, isn't it? This is a no-brainer. You, you always do the good thing, and you always do that which promotes life. And in fact, Matthew is helpful here. Matthew actually points out with a further example that Jesus sets a trap for the Pharisees that they absolutely have no way of extricating themselves from. If you want to know where the parallel account of uh, Mark 3 is, it's in Matthew chapter 12. And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 11 and verse 12, Jesus adds this further illustration. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. And, of course, the answer is, all of you will. Or uh, how much more than better or how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? So it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. In other words, you do a good thing for a woolly sheep, logically extending the argument, would you not do something good for a man as well? And so you would think that the Pharisees would have seen the lot and they said, you know, you're right. You're good, our bad. We missed this one, didn't we? Uh, we didn't see this one correctly, did we? But no, the text is very clear. They're silent. They're silent. In other words, it's like you get in an argument with someone and they just drop the hammer and you have no ability to, to counter their argument, so you stand there and look at them. Just stubborn in your resistance to the truth. And that's what the Pharisees do. And in the process, their silence condemns them. Furthermore, as I was thinking about the text, their silence also reveals their faulty theology. Because they think of God being up there. They actually have almost a, a Muslim view of God. An Islamic view of God. You see what you mean by that? The Muslims think of God not as father, but as judge. He's not gracious. He's stern. He's up there with the, with the, the scales. 
watching very, very carefully the scales. And if you happen to have a little bit more bad than good, expect hell. So you better work really, really hard to get the scales back up the other way. And that's how he deals with his people. Jesus says, no, our God is a God of grace. It's a God of mercy, of kindness, of compassion, of love. He, he takes great delight in taking broken things and putting them back together. He takes great delight in taking hurting people and, and healing them. Uh, he says it is always right to do good. So, Jesus, be right in what you do. Secondly, be right in what you say. And then thirdly, be right in what you feel. Verse 5. And he, that is Jesus, looked around at them, don't miss this, with anger. It's one of the few times in the Bible that it is said of our Lord that he, excuse me, was angry. He, he looked around the room with anger. He was grieved at the hardness of their heart. With righteous indignation, he is angry. He is grieved. Uh, the New Living Translation says it this way. He looked at them angrily and was deeply saddened. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, the message says, He looked them in the eye, one after another, angry now, furious at their hard-nosed religion. You know what? Um, it's troubling to me as an ordained Baptist minister and preacher to realize that Jesus never even one time became angry at tax collectors and regular sinners, not once. When he becomes angry in the Bible, it is always at self-righteous religious leaders. Now, that makes me nervous. And maybe if it makes me nervous enough, I won't become one of those self-righteous religious leaders who looks down his nose at everybody else and says, oh, I thank God I'm not like them. No, save for the grace of God, go every one of us. And so the Bible says doing good for the glory of God will require personal conviction. But then finally... Doing good for the glory of God will encourage hostile opposition. You know, it's amazing to realize that doing a really good thing for someone made others really mad simply because he did not do it in the right way. I've noticed, by the way, in recent days, even in the Baptist family, there are some people who, if you're not careful, will become critical. They won't criticize you for what you believe, but they'll criticize you for how you get there. Uh, most of you know, and I don't mind apologizing because I don't mind you knowing what I think about anything. Basically, I, I'm very much committed to a position of total abstinence when it comes to the use of alcohol. Uh, in this modern context in the 21st century here in America, I find nothing good that comes from the use of alcohol. And I actually believe that the Bible provides some principles that would guide us to such a position. I, I call it the wisdom witness principles, the, the wisdom of staying away from something that brings so much harm and sorrow and difficulty in our world today. And, and the witness principle, as I tell folks, you, you never run the risk of harming your witness by taking a total absence position, but you do run the risk of hurting your witness by partaking of alcohol, even if it's done on a social level. So as what's the imposition? 
I believe that the Bible would affirm in principle the wisdom of abstinence. And yet I've been criticized by some people in recent uh, months because they think I should point to Bible to the Bible and to chapter and verse that says thou shalt not drink alcohol. Now, let me tell you, I wish I could find that chapter and verse. And in fact, if you can find it for me, please, after the service, bring it to my attention so that I can revamp and readjust the way I get to that. And I'll be able to use that argument. I really wish it were in there. The problem is it's not. It's not in there. And so even though I wind up with a total abstinence position, there's some people that are unhappy with me because I don't get there in the right way. Well, in a sense, you have that kind of with the Pharisees here. Oh, they're fine with the man being healed as long as it's on the Sabbath. They're fine with the man being healed as long as it's done their way and not the way Jesus did it. Well, what do you learn then from verse 6, which simply says the Pharisees went out and immediately they held counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. Well, all of us know this proverbial saying, but now we see it lived out. Number one, the enemy of my enemy, he's my friend. The Pharisees and the Herodians were hated enemies. However, their common disdain for Jesus made them very strange bedfellows, and they made a pact to get rid of the Galilean troublemaker. The text says immediately they conspired together. Now, the Herodians show up for the first time in Mark. They actually are only mentioned three times in all of the New Testament. They're mentioned here in Mark chapter 3, verse 6. They're mentioned again in Mark chapter 12, verse 13. They're mentioned in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 16. They don't appear to be an organized uh, party like the Pharisees or, or even the Sadducees, but rather they seem to be simply a, a group of wealthy and influential supporters of the Herodians. Uh, in other words, they were men who had aligned themselves with the Herods. They were men that were... Uh, prospering because of their political alignment with the Herodians. In fact, they're not mentioned hardly at all outside uh, the Bible. So they certainly did not have the official organized uh, status that you find with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but they clearly were a group of individuals that sided with Rome, that supported the Herods, Like the tax collectors, they were getting wealthy by their political allegiances. And so the common people and the Pharisees hated their guts. But their common hatred of Jesus allowed them to paper over their differences with one another. And the proverbial saying rings true, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And here's the Danny Aiken edition. Even if I hate his guts. In other words, their common hatred of Jesus was greater than their hatred of one another. And now they become an alliance to destroy him. But then second and finally, the enemy we fear most, we will seek to destroy. Uh, The Pharisees, the Herodians did not want to slow Jesus down. They did not want to stop Jesus. They wanted to destroy him. To use a more provocative word, they wanted to assassinate him. They wanted to kill him. Get him out of the way. And getting rid of him will now become their full-time occupation for about the next two years. Take their hatred 
and couple it with fear, which they likewise had of Jesus, you have an incredibly explosive combination that will lead you to do all sorts of unspeakable and even unbelievable evil. And so let's close. Did you notice something very interesting about this text? How did Jesus violate the Sabbath? And the answer is, even by their reckoning, he didn't. He didn't violate the Sabbath. He didn't mix any concoction to put on the man's hand. He didn't even take the man's hand and lift it up. All he did, like with creation, spoke the word, and the man was healed. He didn't violate the Sabbath even by their standards. And yet, because of their hostility and their hatred, they don't see it. They miss it altogether. I can't prove it, but my suspicion is this may have also been not only the day that the man was healed, but also the day that the man was saved as well. And that would not be unexpected since Jesus came, as Isaiah 53 says, to bear our sins and also to heal our diseases. Very interesting in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, when uh, Peter is witnessing to the man by the name of Cornelius, he says of Jesus, he went about doing good. I'm so glad he did. I'm glad he went about doing good healing this man. I'm glad he went about healing souls. I'm glad that Jesus makes it crystal clear for all of us this evening, no matter the place, no matter the date, no matter anything, it is always right to do good. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that the Lord Jesus was not intimidated by evil men. He was not intimidated by the religious establishment of the day. He was not intimidated by the fact that he knew in provoking them it would eventually lead to his death. But with the courage of his convictions, he chose to do a good thing, healing the man with the withered hand. And I thank you, Lord, that you were not uh, moved nor motivated by the whims of mere mortals, but rather you had an uncompromising commitment and conviction to do the will of your Father. And Lord, in doing good, the greatest good you did was to go to the cross, bearing in your body the full penalty of our sin, that we might be saved from our sin, reconciled to you, and made new creatures in Jesus. That was not only a good thing, that was the greatest thing. And we praise you and thank you for it. May we then learn from this text tonight that it is right for us to do the right thing, to say the right thing, and yes, Lord, feel the right thing, and indeed we ought to be angry. There is a righteous indignation that is biblical when faced with that which is evil. But help us to make sure, Lord, it is a righteous indignation, not a sinful or selfish one. Lord, we thank you for this time of the year when we again celebrate the, the good thing, the great thing you did in sending Jesus into this world. May we be about the business of doing good by living before others, the transformed life made possible through our Savior. May we do good by telling others of what Jesus has done for us, that they too 
might come to know him as their personal Lord and Savior. All of this we pray for your great glory. We make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.